This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Good afternoon to all. Allow me to introduce our distinguished speaker, Professor Heinrich August Winkler. Professor Winkler, and it's not an exaggeration, believe me, is one of the most preeminent historians of modern Germany. It's a true honor and a great pleasure to welcome him today at Stanford. Professor Winkler studied history, philosophy, public law, and political science in Münster, Heidelberg, and Tübingen. From 1972 to 1991, he served as professor for modern and contemporary history at the University of Freiburg. Since 1991, Professor Winkler has been professor of contemporary history at the Humboldt University in Berlin and experienced this very interesting period uh, in Germany's all-new capital. Among his numerous honors, allow me to mention only a few. He has been a German Kennedy Memorial Fellow at Harvard University, a fellow at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars in Washington, D.C., a fellow of Berlin's Institute for Advanced Studies, and a fellow at the Institute for Advanced Historical Studies in Munich. From his many, many publications, again, believe me, it would take us the entire seminar time just to count them all and mention them all. Allow me to mention a, only a few. A Revolution statt Faschismus, 1978, Liberalismus und Antiliberalismus, 1979. Von der Revolution zur Stabilisierung, Arbeiter und Arbeiterbewegung in der Weimarer Republik. Uh, these are three volumes that came out between 84 and 87. Weimar, 1918-1933, Die Geschichte der ersten deutsche Demokratie. This volume appeared in 93. But I think the major work and also the topic of our discussion today is the Opus Magnum, Magnum Opus, a Professor Winkler's comprehensive history of Germany from the early 19th century to 1990, this work is published as we speak with Oxford University Press. I believe it's already there in the bookstores, and I urge all of you who haven't read it yet to <laughs> get it, because I think this is really a work that redefines, remaps the field. Uh, and it only underlines my own personal joy and, and really, uh, yeah, happiness that you are with us today here, Professor Winkler, to introduce uh, this uh, work and to speak with us about German history. So welcome to Stanford University. Well, thank you so much, Professor Eschel, for this kind introduction. Uh, the first volume of uh, Germany Long Road West is available and the second volume will be available within some days in Britain and uh, six weeks, I think, in the United States. And I'm very happy that this has been uh, the reason for the Goethe Institute's invitation to give some lectures here in the United States and in Canada. Um, today's uh, topic is, in fact, a summary of the two volumes of uh, Germany, the Long Road West. The other lecture, a lecture I will be giving tomorrow at Berkeley, um, is in a way an outlook uh, on a work in project, the history of the West, uh, centering on, on the evolution of the value system of 
the West and the asynchronicity of Westernization in Europe. Now to my topic uh, of today, the long way west, uh, a farewell to the German question. When one of the most momentous problems of our era disappears practically overnight, it takes some getting used to. On October 3rd, 1990, tomorrow 17 years ago, the, the reunification of Germany resolved the so-called German question. On that day, the pass of Germany's borders, what they included and what they did not, was determined once and for all. Today, it is easier to grasp the historical significance of that event. A precondition of reunification was that Germany permanently recognized the Oder-Neisse line as its eastern border. As long as the Germans were not ready to do so, they were not ready for reunification. For this reason alone, it is idle to speculate whether the West missed an early opportunity to re-establish Germany as a United Nations state when they rejected the offer contained in Stalin's famous March note of 1952. Opinion surveys conducted in the 1950s reveal that two-thirds of Germans in the Federal Republic would have rejected German unity if it meant giving up Silesia, Pomerania and East Prussia. By 1990, most Germans had long understood that reunification could only take place within the borders of 1945. Seen this way, the German question really involved two questions, not one. Resolving the German question also required resolving the Polish question. And it is only because these two epochal questions had to be resolved together and could be resolved together that a likewise epochal project arrived on the political on the political agenda in the mid-1990s, namely the Eastern expansion of the European Union and the completion of European unification. The German question resolved in 1990 had existed more or less continuously ever since the forced dissolution of the Holy Roman Empire of the German nation by Napoleon in 1806. From the beginning, the German question was never merely a question of territory. It was also a question of the relationship between unity and freedom. The German movements for unity and freedom that formed in the early 19th century wanted to make Germany both a nation state and a constitutional state. Their goal was more ambitious than the one French revolutionaries had taken upon themselves in 1789, for France was already a nation-state, a pre-modern nation-state, long before anyone thought about making it a free constitutional state. Not surprisingly, the outcome of the Napoleonic Wars did nothing to bring German proponents of unity and freedom closer to their objective. Some decades later, those aims appeared once again on the political agenda, this time in the German Revolution of 1848. If there is an ultimate reason for that revolution's failure, 
then it is this, the goal of simultaneously achieving unity and freedom overwhelmed the capacities of Germany's Democrats and liberals who, quite understandably, of course, were unwilling to settle for anything less. Though it was a failure, the revolution of 1848 nevertheless helped resolve the German question. At the beginning of the revolution in March of 1848, no one who called for unity and freedom could imagine a unified Germany without German-speaking Austria. A year later, the majority of representatives at the German National Assembly in Frankfurt's Paulskirche knew that a Großdeutschland, including Austria, was impossible, for such a state would have meant the dissolution of the Habsburg monarchy, and this was a consequence Vienna simply would not accept. The only feasible alternative was a Kleindeutsch or Little German solution, the idea of a Prussian-led Germany exclusive of Austria. But since the then King of Prussia, Frederick William IV, did not want his kingdom to depend, or his empire to depend, on the good graces of the people, this solution was for the time being at least not considered either. Just under a quarter of a century later, one of the two demands of 1848 was realized. Otto von Bismarck resolved the German question insofar as it was a question of territory and of external power. By uniting Germany into a nation-state, Bismarck solved it in the Kleindeutsch sense, that is, without Austria and under Prussian leadership. The other question of 1848, the question of freedom, Bismarck did not and could not solve. A parliamentary government like the Liberals wanted went counter to the interests of Prussia and the other German states. Bismarck did grant Germans one piece of democracy, however. First, in the North German Federation of 1867 and then starting in 1871 throughout the entire Kaiserreich, German men over 25 received the right to vote in Reichstag elections. Like the wars of unification fought against Austria and France, voting rights were part of that revolution from above, Revolution von oben, that would leave its mark on Germany's development for decades to come. A striking feature of Germany's post-1871 development was what could be described as the asynchronous character of its democratization. In German, I would speak of ungleichzeitige Demokratisierung. Though Germany introduced universal male suffrage much earlier than model liberal monarchies like Great Britain and Belgium, it established a parliamentary system of government much later. The democratization of government the transformation of Germany's constitutional monarchy into a parliamentary monarchy did not take place until October 1918, almost 50 years after the founding of the German Empire. The reason why parliamentarization occurred when it did had everything to do with the situation in Germany shortly before the end of the First World War. At that time, military leaders were attempting to deflect responsibility for defeat by laying the blame on social democrats, centrist Catholics and left-wing liberals for their willingness to enter into peace negotiations with the Allied powers. 
these so-called Mehrheitspartei, majority parties, had all become advocates of democratization, which they hoped would help bring about a favorable truce and prevent revolution from below. As we all know, neither hope was fulfilled. Despite the efforts of uh, German moderates, the military would not accept parliamentarization, and revolution followed as a result. But the revolution that took place in 1918-1919 does not count among the major or classical revolutions of world history, and it could hardly have been otherwise. An educational dictatorship by way of revolution was impossible in a country that had known universal male suffrage for 50 years. At the end of 1918, as a logical consequence of its previous political development, Germany elected a national assembly to produce a constitution and established a parliamentary system of government. For all that, however, the peace signed on June 28, 1919 at Versailles was seen as extremely unfair by Germans of all political stripes. In most Germans' eyes, the peace of Versailles discredited a young democratic republic produced by defeat and revolution. A large segment of German society began to associate parliamentary democracy with the victors and thus to regard it as undeutsch, un-German. The Weimar Republic survived only 11 years as a parliamentary democracy. After the parliamentary system failed in 1930, a half-authoritarian presidential system took its place that gave the Reichstag even fewer legislative powers than it had during the Kaiserreich. Yet, Ensuing events demonstrated that the wheel of history could not be turned back so easily. While deparliamentarization lent momentum to the anti-parliamentarian parties on the left and to a significantly greater extent on the right, someone like Hitler could still appeal to Germany's democratic tradition. Hitler not only exploited the widespread resentment towards Germany's parliamentary democracy, which had by then become one in name only, he could also invoke the idea of the German people's participation in politics via equal suffrage, which had been constitutionally guaranteed, at least for men, since Bismarck's days. In this way, Hitler became a beneficiary of Germany's Ungleichzeitige Demokratisierung, asynchronous democratization, a fact that is frequently overlooked in attempts to understand his rise to power. Another aspect of Hitler's success lay in the fact that after the end of the First World War, the answer to the German question was no longer limited to the Kleindeutsch solution. The collapse of the Habsburg monarchy that followed the collapse of the Hohenzollern monarchy removed the very power that had prevented a Großdeutsch, large German solution. Now, the only obstacle to German-Austrian reunification was the will of the victors. And this, of course, was yet another reason to accuse 
the Entente powers and France in particular, that their policy towards Germany contradicted the principle of national self-determination they themselves purported to uphold. Accompanying the newly resurrected dreams of a Großdeutschland was the myth of the Reich, der Reichsmythos. During the first German Republic, the Reich as idea became a universal weapon against Weimar and Versailles, as well as against Moscow, the seat of Bolshevism, and Geneva, the seat of the League of Nations. Since its founding, the Holy Roman Empire, as protector of the Church, had taken upon itself a universal mission in which it strove to be something different and something more than a nation-state among others. After 1918, German right-wing intellectuals, particularly those belonging to Weimar's so-called conservative revolution, assigned the German Reich a new historical mission to become the European Ordnungsmacht and to unify the continent under its leadership. The creation of a greater Germany was only the first step toward this goal. Of the many ties between Hitler and the Bildungsbürger to the cultured classes of Germany, the idea of the Reich was probably the strongest. And it was under its influence that National Socialists annexed Austria in 1938 and established the protectorate of Bohemia and Moravia one year later. After the Second World War began, Hitler and Himmler made plans to re-establish the western border of the Holy Roman Empire and Germanize Burgundy. In the struggle against the Soviet Union, German historians appealed to the Holy Roman Empire's mission of the sword in the East, Schwertmission im Osten. They reminded Germans that during the Middle Ages it had been the German Reich's mission of salvation to prevent the rule of the Antichrist. Hitler himself alluded to the myth of the Antichrist as he, on January 30th, 1942, the ninth anniversary of the Machtergreifung, once again prophesied the extermination of the Jews. The hour will come, Hitler declared, when the most evil world enemy of all times will have played out its role for a thousand of years. Never before was the apocalyptic myth of the Reich so alive as during the four years that preceded the collapse of Hitler's reign. In May of 1945, it was not only the Third Reich that fell, so too did the Second Reich founded by Bismarck. The Zusammenbruch of 1945 signaled the end of the German rebellion against everything politically constitutive of the West. Germany's old reservations about the West's political ideas, human and civil rights, democracy and pluralism, had found their most extreme form in national socialism. The catastrophic failure of this rebellion against democracy initiated learning processes that went far deeper than those in the period after 1918. Of course, not all Germans got a second chance to build a democracy after 1945, just those who lived in the Western occupation zones, the area that would later become the Federal Republic of Germany. Bonn ist nicht Weimar. Bonn is not Weimar, is the title of 
Fritz René Allemann's much-cited 1956 book offering a clear-headed account of the first years of the Adenauer era. Allemann, a Swiss journalist, saw one of the basic differences between the first and the second German republics to lie in the fact that in Weimar the right was nationalistic and the left was internationalistic. While in Bonn, the tempered right was more concerned with supranational policies and the tempered left more concerned with those of national unity. Indeed, the Social Democratic Party of Kurt Schumacher and Erich Eulenhauer gave German reunification far more priority than Western integration. For Adenauer, by contrast, the path to German unity led directly through the unification of Western Europe. To lend historical legitimation to European unification, several of Adenauer's conservative Catholic supporters flatly rejected the idea of Bismarck's Reich and invoked instead the memory of the Holy Roman Empire. In October 1948, during a session of the Parlamentarischer Rat in Bonn, the CDU representative Adolf Süsterhen declared that it was not only the National Socialists who misappropriated the term Reich, the German Empire and the Weimar Republic did as well. Süsterhen explained that the concept of the Reich as it existed for a thousand years in German history was the concept of a supranational European structure. It was the designation of the Christian Occident. If, Sister Hen continued, one wanted to translate Reich into the language of modern politics, one would have to speak of a European Union or a European Confederation. So, as we can see, the idea of a new European mission for Germany was already beginning to crystallize in the second half of the 1940s. Throughout the Adenauer era, this idea was advanced almost exclusively by Catholic conservatives. In subsequent years, it gradually spread to the middle and left. In 1976, in the afterword to the fifth edition of his book, Die Deutsche Diktatur, the Bonn political scientist and contemporary historian Karl Dietrich Bracher, who is what one might call a liberal conservative, was the first to describe the Federal Republic as a post-national democracy among nation states, and a post-nationale Demokratie unter Nationalstaaten. And Bracher repeated this term in 1986 in a contribution to um, the Geschichte der Bundesrepublik Deutschland, and this time the career of this term started. Die Bundesrepublik, eine postnationale Demokratie unter Nationalstaaten, the Federal Republic, a post-national democracy among nation states. In the 1986 historical Streit, the dispute among German intellectuals about the uniqueness of the Holocaust, one can witness the idea of a European mission for Germany drifting further to the left. Reacting to the Berlin historian Ernst Neute's apologetic and revisionist account of German history in the 20th century, Jürgen Habermas wrote in the July 11, 1986 issue of Die Zeit that the unreserved opening of the Federal Republic to the political culture of the West is the major intellectual accomplishment of the post-war era of which his generation in particular could be proud. Borrowing the term coined by the political scientist and journalist Dolf Sternberger, Habermas wrote, 
The only patriotism that does not alienate us from the West is a constitutional patriotism, Verfassungspatriotismus. Unfortunately, he continued, an attachment to constitutional principles anchored in convictions only formed in Germany's Kulturnation after and because of Auschwitz. Those who want to restore a conventional form of German national identity destroy the only viable, or the only reliable foundation for our Western integration. Habermas's response to Neute marked the advent of what I would like to call the posthume Adenauerische Linke, the posthumous Adenauer left. Despite the left's reservations about the military aspect of Western integration, particularly Germany's membership in NATO, it was now, consciously or not, conceding in retrospect that Adenauer, not Schumacher, had been right. By the 1980s, the posthumous Adenauer left, as well as large segments of the West German public, no longer regarded the re-establishment of a German nation-state as a political objective. On the contrary, they understood Germany's divided status as a necessary safeguard to ensure European balance and world peace. And their conviction that Germany should never again be united, many others, myself included, pointed to the German Reich's role in initiating the world wars. Others, like Günter Grass, pointed to Auschwitz. In 1988, two years after the historical Streit, Oskar Lafontaine, the then deputy chair of the Social Democratic Party, published Die Gesellschaft der Zukunft. There he wrote that Germans were virtually predestined to be the driving force behind the supranational unification of Europe, precisely because their disastrous and appalling experiences with a perverted form of nationalism. In trying to derive a European mission for Germany from the crimes of the Third Reich, Lafontaine, perhaps unwittingly, invoked the early Christian notion of Felix culpa, or redemptive fault. But the idea that perversion could give rise to predestination was a dialectical reversal that found little resonance outside the Federal Republic. No one doubted that the Germans had ruined their first nation-state, but did that give them the right to, as it were, dispossess other peoples of their often considerably older nation-states and impose on them a post-national identity? To the ears of many Europeans, the declarations of La Fontaine and other representatives of the Posthumous Adenauer left probably sounded like a new version of the famous lines written in 1861 by the otherwise forgotten poet Immanuel Geibel. Und es mag am deutschen Wesen einmal noch die Welt genesen, which translates roughly as, and the world may finally be healed by Germanism. The post-national identity of the Federal Republic was, unlike the East German ideology of socialist or proletarian internationalism, neither a party doctrine nor a state policy. It expressed rather the attitude of a whole generation of West German intellectuals. When the Berlin Wall fell on November 9, 1989, this attitude, along with its assumptions about the past and present, still represented the prevailing sentiment in West Germany. Only in the late fall of that year, as Germany united Fatherland Deutschland, Einlich Vaterland, resounded in the streets of Leipzig and other cities of the GDR, were West Germans reminded of the still existent 
German question. The historical burden of 1945 had been one-sided and unjust, falling disproportionately on the shoulders of the East Germans. Their call for German unity was primarily a call for a more equitable distribution of that burden. The then German Chancellor Helmut Kohl recognized the sign of the times early on, so did Willy Brandt. Germany's first social democratic chancellor, who led from 1969 to 1974. Both worked for the earliest possible merger of Germany. Oskar Lafontaine, who was planning to run for chancellor in 1990, did not share the view of Brandt, the honorary chairman of, the, of his own party. If Lafontaine had got his way, Germany's unification would have been permitted only after Europe's unification had been achieved. Yet. At the Berlin Party Congress of the Social Democratic Party on December 18, 1989, Brandt, who had just turned 76 that day, spoke out against Lafontaine, Grasse, and all the others who grounded their rejection of a new German nation-state on uh, the crimes of the Nazi period. The heavy guilt of a nation, Brandt stated, cannot be this extinguished cannot be extinguished by decreeing a division indefinitely. One year later, Germany was reunified, and the old goal of unity and freedom was attained. But the guilt had not been extinguished. Such guilt never can. The description post-national democracy among nation states no longer applies to reunified Germany. The new Federal Republic is a post-classical nation-state like the other members of the European Union, ready to share its sovereignty with the supranational community to which it belongs. The sovereignty of the old Federal Republic was restricted by the Allies' right of control over Berlin and Germany in general. This right of control, along with the Soviet Union's Analogous authority over East Germany was suspended on October 3, 1990 and annulled on March 15, 1991, when the 2 plus 4 agreement came into effect. Despite their new sovereignty, Germans needed to accustom themselves to a greater range of political action, and several contro controversies arose in the 1990s as a result. Responding first to the Gulf War and then to the wars in the former Yugoslavia, a great majority of Social Democrats and Greens rejected out-of-area deployments of German troops for United Nations peacekeeping missions. To support their position, politicians frequently invoked German crimes in the Second World War, particularly Auschwitz. Only after the Social Democrats and Greens came to power in 1998, did they accept the foreign policies, policies pursued by their conservative and libertarian predecessors. In 1999, the only party in the German parliament to vote against German deployment in Kosovo was the socialist PDS, the successor of East Germany's SED. Meanwhile, the more moderate left still invoked Auschwitz but this time mostly to underscore the necessity of armed deployment in protecting human rights. 
In the years immediately following German, East Germany's peaceful revolution, many politicians and intellectuals on, of the posthumous Adenauer left warned against a new German nationalism. They believed that the Federal Republic's four-decade-long opening to the political culture of the West could be jeopardized by merger with a state, with a state where such an opening had not been possible. Instead of seeing German reunification as a chance to westernize the East, the posthumous Adenauer left saw reunification as a looming danger that could easternize the West. Seventeen years later, seventeen years after reunification, we know that the feared easternization never came, though many in the German Ulander still harbor prejudices against the West. Germany as a whole has become more and more westernized to the point that even social democrats and greens no longer categorically reject military deployments abroad and accept the added responsibilities of a fully sovereign state. Germany's westernization during this time can also be described as a European normalization the overdue reform of German citizenship law in 1999 was part of that process by no longer defining citizenship solely in terms of blood, but also in terms of will. The Germans introduced a notion of nationhood more like that of other European states. Toward the end of the old Federal Republic, Bonner Republic, a process took place that can be described as a narrowing of Germany's historical horizon, by which German collective memory appeared to limit itself to two points of reference, the Holocaust as the negative pole and West Germany's so-called success story, a Volksgeschichte as the positive pole. Paradoxically, by eliminating Germany's past prior to the Holocaust, this narrowing of the historical horizon resulted in eliminating the prehistory of German crimes against humanity as well. With increasing frequency, historians and intellectuals provided ill-conceived answers to explain the deeper causes of the German catastrophe. The most common of these was that it was the German nation-state of 1871 that led to Auschwitz. In reality, the founding of the first German nation-state was a contradictory undertaking, one that involved both westernization and the strengthening of the authoritarian state. The path to catastrophe began not with the resolution of the question of unity, but with the failure to resolve the question of freedom. It was not the nation-state as such, but the myth of a Reich which wanted to be more than a nation-state that led to the self-destruction of Germany between the years of 1933 to 1945. In trying to understand the self-destruction, many post-war historians began to speak of a German Sonderweg, the idea that Germany had followed a unique course of his through history. There have been many objections to the notions of a German Sonderweg, the most important being that there are never any normal routes through history. 
This is certainly right. But if all history is a history of Sonderwege, it is still true that some routes are, as it were, more unique than others. What makes Germany's history particularly unique is this. Though Germany belongs culturally to the Occident and helped to shape the West for centuries, it long rejected the democratic consequences of the Enlightenment and for 12 years starting in 1933, even rejected the Enlightenment itself. This is what some historians refer to as the German divergence from the West. And when I speak of the Germans on der Weg, I mean precisely that. In 1945, the German Reich's anti-Western Sonderweg finally came to an end. In 1990, the old Federal Republic's post-national Sonderweg, as well as East Germany's forced internationalistic Sonderweg, also drew to a close. Now that Germany's divergent paths have all run their course, it is time for Germans to re-broaden their historical horizon and face their history in its complex entirety. Germans need to know where they have come from, to know who and where they are today. And they need to know who and where they are today to know what they can contribute to Europe. It is for this reason that the way Germans confront their history will be of crucial significance, not just for Germany, but for all of Europe as well. Thank you for your kind attention. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.